You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, your host, cruise director and tour guide, whatever you want to call me. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about ways to determine predictable success. My guest is a gentleman named Les McCown. And uh, Les, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Doug. Thanks for asking me. Hi, everybody. Yeah, it uh, tell us just let's kind of dive right in. What is predictable success, and how'd you come up with that? Well, it's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it's the name of a book that I published in two thousand and ten, um, and it's also the name that I gave to a model that I didn't invent, but I did uncover uh, in high organizations. I'm mostly businesses in the context we're about to talk about, but it applies to any group of two or more people trying to achieve common goals. How any organization grows uh, and why sometimes they fail to grow. And it came out of uh, initially my career as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, As you probably can guess from my accent, I'm not originally from these parts, although I'm talking to you from beautiful Maryland. I come from the UK, from Ireland originally. And, uh, I started as a CPA, the UK equivalent, which is a chartered accountant, Uh, not because I had any interest in doing taxes or anything like that, but I was fascinated with how businesses worked, I thought. As it turned out, I was fascinated by how organizations work, but that's another story. And um, as soon as I qualified, uh, I started helping people launch businesses. They started to ask me to get involved with them. Uh, By the time I was 35, I'd been... uh, involved with 42 launches and even a stupid Irishman starts to see common patterns Doug if you do something that often and I started to note down what I saw were the commonalities in those businesses that failed and those that succeeded um, and I'll make this really short uh, I then got asked by a friend of mine who was also a serial entrepreneur if I'd join him in putting together what became uh, the first real, um, what we would now call, you know, like Y Combinator or Techstars uh, Incubation Center to train other people launching businesses. Very long story short, 10 years later, we had 13 offices worldwide, 100 and something people doing this and helping literally hundreds of organizations every year get launched, plus also helping Existing businesses get to second stage growth. And I saw these patterns grow and grow and grow, kept doodling and doodling, doodling, gave names to the commonalities. And it became what I call the predictable success model. Fascinating, fascinating work. You know, I think for for those of us that are a little longer in the tooth, as it were, we, we do have the benefit of experiencing those observations and those studies and if we if we went the advisor consultant route, we get called in for many more of those opportunities. And and you're absolutely right. Patterns emerge. It it just seems undeniable. And I I think uh, I know my, in my own experience, it doesn't matter what industry it is. It it's it's more tied to human behavior and human thought that drive <clears throat> these patterns and and the development of these things. So can you give us the the flyover of what some of are there are there key pillars in this model? 
there are, let's call them stages. Let's call them stages of growth. Okay. Um, and essentially what I discovered is, uh, and again, just to quickly reiterate, I won't say that again, this applies for profit, not for profit, whether you're a distributor, manufacturer, service business, it applies in every situation. Uh, there are three growth stages, a peak stage, and then three decline stages. And really quickly, the growth stages are, first of all, uh, I'm going to use the terminology I've given to them, uh, early struggle. And any of us who have been around or familiar uh, in launching businesses are familiar with the early struggle stage, sometimes called the startup stage. I don't like that because in some weird way in the last 15, 20 years, we've glorified the startup stage as if it's something holy. And uh, <laughs> there's only one stra valid strategy if you have a startup, and that's to stop being one. Yes. Otherwise, you'll cease to exist in due course. Right. The money <clears throat> right. So I talk about the early struggle stage. It's a battle to find your uh, profitable, sustainable market. You get through that, and only in a decent year, 20%, of new ventures, it's usually much lower than that, will get through uh, the early struggle stage. So highly Darwinian right early on. You get into what I give the most technical stage at all. I call it the fun stage. And it's the fun stage because it is. We found our market. Uh, we know now know who we're servicing. We're getting some revenue. Uh, we're not waking up every day with an existential threat as to whether we might exist or not. Uh, so we're highly evangel evangelistic. We love the business. I tell people, if you're know somebody who's in the fun stage of growth and you see them in the street and you're dumb enough to go over and talk to them, you'll end up buying whatever it is that they're selling because they just <laughs> love it. Oh, I did. The biggest realization in all of this, it took me a long time, nearly 15 years to work out, is that those two stages are what we all think is it. If you, Because who, who thinks in terms of uh, life cycles and stages? And if you said to anybody, whether they'd started a business or not, you know, just use your common sense. What 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 do you think it's likely to be uh, uh, like starting a business? They'll say, well, I I'm, can tell it's really tough, so it'll be tough for a while, and then I might not make it, but if I do make it, then we'll have some fun, and then I'll just do more of that and more of that and more of that, and that's where m most of us sort of, that's as far down the river as we see. In fact, it's only two of the five stages because what happens with fun is our very, you know, joie de vivre, the fact that we love it, that we're so evangelical, makes us successful. Plants love us, we're highly flexible. And we grow, and that growth brings creeping complexity. And the complexity at some point begins to slowly choke our ability to be so flexible. And we hit what I call the whitewater stage. And the whitewater stage is just feels like that. It's, you know, what was plain sailing suddenly got a little rocky and it feels like we're fixing stuff all the time and we're, you know, filling in potholes and doing a lot of remedial work. And it's essentially just the stage where we need to grow up as an organization. We've got to put systems and processes in place. We've got to learn discipline. You know, the most common word we use in fun is a three word, three letter word starts with Y, ends with S. It's the answer to everything is yes. And in Whitewater, we learn that saying yes to everything is now was a good thing, not a bad thing. It's killing us. We've got to learn to really begin to strategically say no to some things and get really good at rinsing, repeating our core business. We get through whitewater, we get to that peak stage, what I call predictable success. And the key distinction between fun, which is real fun, and predictable success, which is great fun, uh, is that in uh, fun, uh, growth is a, is a convex curve and our listeners need to know I'm making the shape of a curve with my hand and um, it always has got uh, you know a cap and a cap is that whitewater stage we put the right framework in place of systems and processes get to predictable success growth becomes scale 
it becomes a convex curve. The ability, a J curve, as the cool kids call it, get the ability to put our foot in the gas pedal and really accelerate forward. And that's the predictable success stage. Do all the right things. We can stay there. It's where the aging analogy to human growth taps out because if you do the right stuff, you can stay in predictable success indefinitely, but few organizations do. Typically what happens is, hey, we just did a great thing. We put systems and processes in place and it got us here. Let's put more in place. And what we do is we become over-systematized. We begin the decline stage. We fall, first of all, into a stage I call treadmill. And treadmill is just sort of the mirror symbiotic twin, the evil twin of whitewater. Whitewater, for the first time, we're under-processed. Treadmill, for the first time, we're over-processed. It all begins to become a bit rote. We lose our mojo. We're not just as creative anymore. If, if, but if we recognize that we can recover, come back to predictable success. If we don't, we fall into a long, long, slow slide to our relevancy. I call it the big rut, where, hey, we're stuffed with money because we were in predictable success for a long time. We've got, you know, a big user base. But we're sliding into irrelevancy and eventually, and it may be generational, if it's a big enough organization, we hit the final stage, which I call death rattle, which is really when it looks like something's happening. Oh, we're hearing about this organization, this business again. Uh, Kodak was a good uh, example a few years ago. All that was happening was we were putting it to bed. So those are the seven stages, three growth stages, peak stage, predictable success, and three decline stages. What we want to do is decide which of, there are only two valid stages, fun or predictable success. Those are the only stages you want to be in. They're the only sustainable stages. Pick which one you want. I personally, I'm in fun and I stay here and I work very hard to do that. I've been in predictable success many, many times, but there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't want to scale and I don't. I don't want to be McKinsey. I don't want to be Bain and Company. Um, but most of my clients very much want to be in predictable success. They want to scale, but you got to make that decision and then do the right things to get to whichever stage you want to be in. Yeah. I love that framework, Les. Uh, that is such a great picture, and it, it so accurately describes those those journeys. And as many of my listeners know, I've talked about this before, in my 20 years in banking, I, I watched companies go through those phases. Right. And for me, and, and by the way, I totally agree with your description of them. Hadn't thought about them in those terms, but, but I've definitely thought about the tranches and the, and the uh, levels and cycles. The, one of the things that I've always been sensitive to or gravitated toward focus is often one of the limiting factors in making the proper moves between stages and protecting against those three latter stages is in the headspace of the founder owner. 100%. And 100%. knowing where they are, willing to call the shot, and inevitably, even in the later part of the fun stage sometimes the owner is not ready to make that next big push to to scale and and go into that highly predictable success mode you know it's it's excuses like i don't want to give up control this is my baby you know blah 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 so talk a little bit more from a from that leadership standpoint of of sure what you've observed in your work with, with founder owners? Most successful founder owners are uh, of a breed that I call the visionary leader. 
Um, there, there are four types of leader, by and large, that show up throughout that, through that life cycle. And they've got a very distinct choreography. The times when they appear and when they're of use uh, can be predicted. And visionaries uh, typically have left a treadmill or a big rut, maybe even a predictable success type of environment because of one overarching thing. Uh, and it's that drive for freedom and autonomy. You ask almost every founder owner at heart, money comes a close second, but it's typically, that's more of a of, of a measure of the ability. You know, the, the reward is a measure of the ability to, be, to do things their own way in their own timetable. And you've heard the the definition of an entrepreneur, somebody who stops working 40 hours a week for somebody else to work 80 hours a week for themselves. And that's true that, you know, they want to have that freedom and autonomy. And that's a massive skill very early on. Now, what happens is any visionary worth their salt, uh, any visionary leader worth their salt. And I don't mean by that, by the way, that they're up mountains, you know, taking payout and, you know, having psychedelic visions though they might they're just they're people who think in pictures and they think big and they're they're prepared to take risks all the stuff that you're very familiar with what a visionary a successful visionary leader uh, who uh, launches something will do as soon as they possibly can is they'll find themselves what i call an operator one or more operators and operators are the symbiotic twin of the visionary Visionaries are starters. They get their endorphin rush by thinking of something new. You know, the last time if you if you work for a visionary, the last time you want to talk to them is Monday morning after they've been on vacation or they've been to a conference <laughs> because they're full of, you know, their idea bank is exploding. Yes. Yeah. And, and you haven't finished working through last month's yet. So uh, visionaries know that while they can do the dirty fingernail work of of, of installing, implementing, maintaining it doesn't float their boat, doesn't make them excited. So they'll find themselves an operator who is somebody for whom that is life. They are, they're people who go through breeze block walls. They just make things happen. They're actually not that comfortable with blue sky thinking and all that sort of stuff, but they can finish their visionary sentences. So when the visionary has this idea, the operator says, I got a boss, I'll make it happen. Just don't watch because it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. And that's how you grow in the in the early struggle and fun stage is you have a visionary who is conducting a little orchestra of operators. And it's mostly a series of one-on-one -on -one communications. There's little need for cross-communication and all that sort of stuff. We're just doing relatively simple things. And that grows the business really well. And the visionary and the operators build a lot of sweat equity. Uh, and they, they build the myths and legends of the business because they're saying yes to everything then somehow making it happen. And they reach Friday evening righteously exhausted. The beer busts every Friday night because there's no HR department to tell us not to yet. And, and we've had a great week. We said yes to ridiculous things and somehow we screw up every now and again. But that's fun feels like that. Now, what happens in the in the when they hit Whitewater about a year after they hit Whitewater, because there's a period of denial and it takes time to work out what really what's going on here, when they realize there's a systemic need if they want to get to the next stage of growth, to put systems and processes in place, that's one thing. Adhering to them is a wholly different matter. Because here you have a visionary founder owner who's 110% behind systems and processes, except for the percentage that involves them doing right, it. Right. And here you have operators by now, a group of operators who see 
systems and processes is nothing more than something coming between them and the breeze block wall they've got to get through. And so at that stage, to make the transition into predictable success, a third style has to emerge at senior level. It's always will have been around at a very low level. I call it the processor style. That's your, you know, your first CFO or head of HR or you know, legal or quality control. And that's where it all begins to go sideways because the visionary founder owner intellectually wants the stuff, wants the growth, wants the scalability, but really resiles not just against the personal giving up of freedom and independence that is required. And that's why, by the way, one of the first things you've got to stop doing if you're serious about moving from being a founder owner in fun to running something in uh, predictable success is you've got to stop calling yourself the founder because essentially what calling yourself the founder says to everybody is I get to do whatever I want, right? That's why even though words are not that important and titles aren't that important, actually beginning to call yourself a CEO where you're holding yourself out as the steward of the business where the business is not you know, an outgrowth of you personally is an important mental shift. But anyway, not to digress, I work with so many founder owners who really, really, really want to make this happen, but they not only hate the systems and processes, secretly, they won't tell you this, and I shouldn't say it on the out loud on the your podcast either, but they come to load the processors as well. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, them, yeah. Because they're negative to, as far as the visionary sees. They've just got different worldviews. And that, by the way, is to picture, complete the picture. Why to make that transition successfully? There's a fourth style. I call it the synergist style that has to develop. And it's different from the visionary operator and processor in that it's a learned style, not, a, not so much a natural style. But visionaries need to learn to become visionary synergists. And processors have to do their work too. And the operators become processor synergists, operator synergists. In other words, they've got their natural style I'm a big vision. I take a big chance. I'm a processor. I want to measure seven times and cut once. They've got to begin to think, oh, yes, that may well be the case. But what of my behaviors do I need to learn to discipline? It's a synergist thinking to come up with the best answers for the organization as a whole. And that's hard. And very many founder owners, quite right. I'm one of them here. I'm an example of it. Just say eventually, as far as I'm concerned for my business. No, thank you. I'm fine. I, I'm just fine the way I am. So I'll stay in fun. Yeah, no, it, uh, it it is that I, li I like the way you describe those and the, the the mental pivots that have to happen. And I, I think one of the big challenges that I've observed is is that founder owner who is very much the visionary is the most common symptom I see is they're unwilling to bring those other complementary forces into the business. Because they they say things like, "Well, we don't have quite enough cash flow yet to justify that job." I, you know, I can't hire that guy. I I, I have a vision of who they should be and the, the scope and depth and breadth and etc. And I'm not ready to hire that person yet. And the part about loathing the process, um, duly noted and duly asterisked your your caution on that subject, but. I've seen that work out. I, I, I saw it work out just recently with a, a client company. I had the um, 
you know, two founders doing quite well, have been for 15 years, but they, they profess to want to take it to the next level, but they're bound up because both of them have incredibly fat, heavy day-to-day obligations on, on running the business. And as we began talking about options and opportunities to automate, install process, find the extra people to augment, get the processor type people in, they shook their head and they said, no, you know, we're not, we're not ready for that. And I said, well, then guess what? You, you're you're going to have to get happy staying where you are. And so, and which is fine, by the way, nothing, nothing at all wrong with that, but quit fooling yourself that you really want to go to the next level and, and just focus on what you do well and be happy with it. Right. It's a big challenge. No, no doubt about it. What, um, boy, so many things. I'm also, I'm going to pivot a little bit. Talk to me about the dynamic of this whole enterprise being effectively a family-run business. A a family dynamic um, multiplies uh, a whole bunch of the uh, patterns that happen anyway. Um, There are a couple of, there's talk forever just on that topic, but there are a couple of large things. Um, One is that in that visionary operator processor synergist uh, model, that's tough enough to choreograph independent of the family dynamic. When you add the family dynamic, what tends to happen is you've got, and and forgive me, I'm going to be gender normative uh, a bit here uh, because that's been my lived experience. And I know that it's changing dramatically and I'm very happy that it is, but I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to make something up that wasn't the case, particularly growing up in Northern Ireland, uh, which, you know, sort of like a step back two generations in time. Um, the, the typical uh, founder-owner family dynamic has been a patriarchal visionary leader to start with. Now, I, I just said again one last time, I'm really happy to say that's changing a lot, but that it was what I was mostly dealing with for many, many years. So you got a, a patriarchal, a guy started a family business, is the visionary. And the next generation get forced to work as operators if they come into the family business. Because Pop says, no, I don't think you can come in here and just, you know, trade on your last name. You're going to learn everything about the business. And they get pushed out there and they're they're made to work as operators. And the third generation or most frequently younger siblings, if they get involved, they're the ones who watch all of this and think, you screw ups, you know, because family members can say that sort of thing about each other. If only you knew how to use modern technology uh, or, you know, work out how to systematize this stuff you're doing. And they bring the processor mindset. And what rarely happens because of family interpersonal dynamics is that they ever develop the synergist mindset. Because that would then involve setting aside family dynamics as well as business dynamics and actually just make the best interests for the sake. And if you've watched Succession, you've seen a whole bunch of this stuff in play. And so that makes it really, really complicated and uh, tough to do. The other thing that makes it hard is one of the key transitions that has to happen if you're serious about getting into predictable success 
is that not only does the four inches between the ears of the founder and the way in which the founder thinks have to shift essentially from total freedom and autonomy, I can change direction immediately anytime I want to being disciplined and holding steady, not giving up all freedom and autonomy by any stretch, but corralling it a bit. The other thing that needs to happen is that the whole concept of leadership needs to change. And for reasons we probably don't have time to go into in the podcast, you see this even more, and it's it happens everywhere, but it's, it's very apparent in a lot of churches and faith-based, uh, growing faith-based organizations. And it's this, that as you reach peak fun, being there for a number of years, you're really good at this. You're not predictable success. You're one of those scalable, repeatable systems and processes, but boy, you're pretty good at this. There's typically a group of people who are called a leadership group, but they're not. They're water carriers, mm -hmm. and they should be. And it's, it's right for them to be. That's how you grow early on. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a derogatory way. I mean, they're essentially operators who have learned how to manage people, which is not an easy operator skill, in order to realize the vision of the visionary. That's what they're there to do. We're water carriers for this core vision. Moving into predictable success requires the development of a genuine leadership team, a team that work, can work together pretty much co-equally with a first among equals, it's our CEO in the model, but who have got the skills of high quality team-based decision-making. If you don't have what we call in predictable success, the T1, uh, because everybody's got a different title for their senior leadership group. But if your T1, your most senior leadership group, can't make high-quality team-based decisions, you will never get sustainably into predictable success. You'll keep falling back into the fun stage where you have the founder cracking the whip and everybody else is essentially a water carrier. And trying to do that with a family dynamic, it's not impossible, but it's pretty close to it. Yeah. I, I love your analogy there, and I, uh, you know I, I'm thinking so many times in, in my own experience working with churches and nonprofits. You you pegged it. <laughs> that is exactly what ends up happening, and and I I think partially it's, it's a function of it being fundamentally a volunteer organization by and large. So if if you are that senior leader of that organization, you embrace and accept whoever shows up and, and you're not really vetting for that skill of what you really need on the team at the time. You're just happy to have the warm body who's willing to be there. And then they go off and begin doing their chores and it, it may or may not be contributory to the overall good of the organization. Sure. And, and even those churches and, or other faith-based or cause-based organizations, you know, like a, a large NGO or, you know, uh, you know, somewhere it's running a whole series of homes for addicts, whatever it might be, anything that's faith or cause-based, uh, does something. It, it, they attract a very uh, people with a high degree of that synergist style that I talked about. Synergists are naturally drawn. They want to help people. They want to work with people and help people. So... Um, if you think of a for-profit as it develops, there's not an awful lot of room for the synergist leadership style in the early stages. In fact, it gets in the way. Processor rule will get in the way a lot, and the synergist rule can get in the way quite a bit because there's nothing that you need to synergize. We're not, you know, in a not small six people. You know, we all know what's going on, and we're fine. 
but a church attracts a lot of the synergist folks. So even you get to the stage where, you know, it's well-funded and it's highly successful, you still then typically got a group of leaders who find conflict problematic and who find making uh, decisions that that can be interpreted as being mercenary decisions. You know, you just don't, quotes, don't have the skill set isn't enough. You know, well, what about my calling? What about the fact that God put me here? And so that becomes, I mean, I, I, I work 40% of my businesses in that world. And I get it, and I fully understand, and I was part of that world for a long, long, long time. Um, and I'm so I'm not making any judgment about it. I'm just saying it makes it really quite difficult then to, you know, it's hard enough when you run a for-profit business and the person that you knew was, you know, started with you back 15 years ago and sort of has over time developed into your, I don't know, chief technical officer. Right. And you're at the stage where you realize she doesn't have it. This, you know, this business is way past her skill set. That's a hard enough decision to have if you don't have God's vision <laughs> wrapped, wrapping around it as well, which makes it right. even harder. Right, right. Well, and 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 going back to the, the core question about family business, I, I saw a model that I, I really embraced and, and I like it and I'm I'm very sorry to the author I'm drawing a blank on your name I will look it up and try to cover back but it has to do with the notion of if you're going to run a family business you need to be really crystal clear about roles in the business and the roles include things like visionary versus investor versus operator versus employee and you need to kind of put those tags and boxes around each role and it's one thing for uncle george to be putting up some money to help the business but what are you going to allow him to do i mean does he get to show up and walk around every day or is wow. is does he need to stay quiet and you need to have that discussion up front right. and be very clear and uh not 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 let that get out of bounds yeah, it's a core um, element of successfully making the move through Whitewater for any organization, whether it's family-based or not, um, but it, it gets amplified in family businesses. I'll share why in a second or two. Uh, to do something called moving, uh, what we call moving from heads to hats. And a business, you know, and fun business is a heads-based business, by which I mean you walk into a small, you know, you just go to your local printer shop, you know, that you use to produce your tchotchkes or whatever it is. I, if you were to say to the owner there, what, what does your sales manager do? She'd probably turn around and say, hey, Giselle, come over here. Would you tell the man he wants to know what you do. Because what the sales manager does is whatever Giselle does. She's the sales manager, right? She So whatever she does, that's what the sales manager does. And that's as it should be in the fun stages as you're beginning to get serious about getting into and staying in predictable success. Uh, as we sort of hinted a, a, a about earlier, one of the things that's happening is that the business is separating from the founder. It's not an outgrowth of them. It's a separate entity and it needs to be represented in its own right. And so the business in a sense, uh, and I'll often take this role on where I'll talk to the leadership team and say, look, I'm the business. And what I'm saying to you is, I need you to know what I need from a sales manager, what the hat is. Doesn't matter who the current head is. We need to define our hats. 
what do our sales managers do? What do our CTO do? What does our CFO do? What do our investors do? What do our board members do? And define that. Now, we then can, you know, we're dealing with real people. We bring the real person back in. And you know what you might notice or it might highlight something that you've long suspected, which is Giselle doesn't have all of the skills we need from a sales manager. Maybe she's been the world's greatest sales manager, but we now need a sales and marketing manager. Giselle doesn't have that. So we need some coaching. We need some teaching. We need some training. Maybe we need to split the roles. Maybe. And I've never seen a business get through predictable, get through whitewater without this happening. At some point, you're going to say, I don't see how we can get there with this exact team that we currently have. Right, right. Now, you start doing all of that in the family environment. It's very hard, but a really great starting point is to start just using the heads versus hats vocabulary because it depersonifies a lot of the decision. So you've got one person talking to another person. If they're saying, look, here's what I need the CTO to be doing for me. I need 98% uptime. You know, I need all of our core upgrades in software done overnight, every night. And that's, that's, that's a request. That's a need from the CTO. I'm not beating up on you, Ben, because that didn't happen last week. I'm saying that's what the business needs from the CTO. And just making that heads to hats move can be very helpful. Yeah. And along that line, even even if, if it's not family, I have frequently had founder owners that um, they're they're at that stage. They're making these pivots. They're they're on the cusp of moving to fun from fun to predictable success. And they're feeling the need to change the organization and bring on that extra talent you're talking about. But they'll say things like, oh, we can't touch Sally. She has been with me since day one. Whatever we do, we have to find a role for Sally. And I'm like, okay, well, probably we can and will find a role for Sally. And you start mapping out what the needs are, speaking as the business. And the owner comes back and says, yeah, but I really want Sally to do part of that. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you, you, you can't, you can't have both. Right. Yeah. I, I, when I was young and full of something and vinegar, as the saying goes, um, I, I'd long took a, a fairly clinical approach, which, which was wrong. And which was, because that always happens. There's always, you know, a, a person that's been around for a long, long time, and just the the they've become a not just has the business and the and the responsibility grown beyond them, they've become a blocker as well. Almost always the case. And I used to pretty clinically confront that and say, well, you know, if you're serious about this, you're going to have to just make a decision. Which is it? Is it Sally or is it predictable success? It's one or the other. Um, but I have learned over the decades that in uh, the real world. It is possible to 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 real recognize both dynamics that you're serious about getting to predictable success, and you genuinely owe Sally so much. And you know, you maybe you're the godfather to some of her kids. Maybe she's the godmother to some of yours. And you know, maybe she dug you out at a time whenever you were in the fetal position, didn't know how you're going to pay the bills. Just maybe she's just been around and done a great job for whatever the, the reason is. You can do what I call, but don't recommend using this phrase when talking to Sally, do what I call building a dinosaur park. 
so you you can have a conversation which is a little difficult, but it's not a separation conversation which says, Sally, I I, I can tell you're uncomfortable with where we're headed, and I just want to I just want to take some time and talk to you about where we are going, and also to say, look, I don't want you to feel you have to be dragged through a hedge to this destination you don't want to go. I'm going to you know grand person you in. We're going to build a role for you with very defined. Uh, responsibilities that you will enjoy. And I'm more than happy for you to continue to do that. There's just two things that I want to, I, I, I need your support on. One is I don't want you undermining what we're doing in a broader sense. I want you to, you know, accept it and be comfortable with it and not try and dissuade other people about where we're headed. And the second thing is I don't want you undermining people we bring in specifically to do things that you feel you should still be doing because that's where it's going to be most painful for all of us. And if that's okay, I, you know, I want you here for as long as you're prepared to be here. And, and that can work very well. Uh, and typically what happens is Sally will probably move on of her own volition or take out of retirement or whatever. Once it's very clear that the business is going on this path, that's that just doesn't fit for her that well, but it'll happen with goodwill as opposed to a horrible discussion. Yeah. Well, and if that person is truly the ally they've they've represented them to be themselves to be for long many years, they might actually feel a little relief at that announcement that in in truth they know they're being asked to stretch beyond their their means and abilities and consciously or subconsciously they're feeling the rub that you know I'm probably going to fail at this if I if if it keeps going this direction, but they don't know how to say that because they right. have their own dynamic about that longevity and that commitment uh, to the owner. And uh, it, I like the way you frame that though, providing that kind of opportunity and creating that solution for the moment. Well, where that sense, I'm sorry, Doug, you were going to ask a question. No, go ahead. Fin finish with your thought there. That sense uh, of, of relief uh, and a shifting of rules that you talked about were, that's palpable every time I've, I've been through this process or worked whether by myself or with other people is if we go back to that um, uh, T1 concept of, of making the shift from a group of enablers to a genuine leadership team, what's typically happening at the same time is if you think about it as a series of larger donuts. So we've got the T that we've got T zero actually, which is the founder and uh, other owners, but we don't talk about that for now. Then we've got T one, which is the senior leadership group at the point where we're beginning to recognize that just that they need to be really good at making high quality team based decisions. What's typically happening in the business at the same time is that there's a T two group of let's call them managers. So we've got senior leaders and then we've got the manager group. Um, is beginning to form an, a, a separate entity, whereas previously those roles, leader, manager, all messed up together. And eventually we're going to have a T3 group who are project leads, shift leads, all that sort of stuff, but we're not there yet. We've just got our T1 and then a, a beginning to become a solidified T2 of managers. What happens all the time is that there'll be at least one, about a third of whoever's in the T2 group. So if it's six people, it'll be two. If it's nine, there'll be about three of them. It'll dawn on them eventually what probably the founder owner has seen 
uh, beforehand, which is I'm a really high performing T2, right? So I've got, so go back to our friend, been there for 15 years. He's in the T1 group. He's got the title CTO. He's supposed to be the chief technology officer. And he realizes I'm a brilliant IT manager and I love being an IT manager. None I like more than actually fixing stuff. And I hate being a CTO. And they'll, if it's handled correctly, the ability to take that transition and say, hey, boss, I don't think I'm the right guy for that role, right? I want to do this. Now, it doesn't always work out just so smoothly and easily than that, but that's a key thing to realize that when, you know, when we're running the business at fun, particularly early fun, have you ever watched, any of our listeners have ever watched six-year-olds play soccer? That's what it's like. It's flock ball. You know, the ball's here and there's 22 people, including both goalkeepers and just wherever the ball goes, they go. And if it's the summer, there's a dust cloud above them, you know, and that's how we get things to happen in fun. And as we begin to pull that apart, moving through whitewater into predictable success, it's a bit like moving to watching a semi-pro soccer team, then a pro soccer team where people have their roles, they have their positions and the ball is being made to do the work. It's being moved around between the, the team players. Now, that's what's beginning to happen in Whitewater. And at that point, somebody realizes, I'm a brilliant winger and I'm a terrible goalkeeper. I'm a great left back and a horrible center forward. You know, pick your sport of choice and your role of choice. And absent that, without that sort of, you know, that's all tied in a bit with the heads and hats terminology. People just begin to think, they were doing really well blockball days and now I'm failing. What's right. happened here? Right. Well, all that's happened is that the game has changed. You, you know, we've stepped up a league and it doesn't mean necessarily that you shouldn't be on the pitch. It means you've got to learn to play your role. And that may not be the role that you popped up like a game of musical chairs with the hat for CTO. I've mixed all my metaphors now. You know, so here I am in the CTO. And how did I get here? Was it a planned thing? Not really. Yeah. I'm, I'm best as an IT manager. So let me do that. Well, I think it, I love your hat and head analogy there. And, and the, the idea of defining the hats, if, if going, going back to the owner, founder, creator, as they see this landscape grow and change, being able to accurately define the need, you know, what, what role do I need for the next iteration of the company and, and being able to be true to that definition and say, now that I've got the definition, who's the right person to put in there. And, you know, cousin Eddie might not be the right guy to fit that role, even though he helped you set up the business, set up all the furniture and equipment and, got you going, that's not a qualification for anything. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, the more time goes on, the more it's just frankly, statistically unlikely. Right. He's the right guy as you know, yeah. and that doesn't mean he did anything wrong. And it doesn't mean he shouldn't have backed you to start with. It just means that to get to the next stage of where we're going, we have to rethink what our relationship is and what's best for the organization as a whole. Yeah. Well, Les, this has been fabulous, and thank you so much for sitting in. Tell everybody the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in in connecting. Uh, send about 
as much money as you can get your hands on to my Swiss bank account. No, no. <laughs> I'm at predictablesuccess.com and there's a ton of free stuff there. You can get a free chapter of the book. Uh, you can get tons of uh, downloads and free uh, white papers on all of the stuff we talked about. So just hop on over to predictablesuccess.com. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you, Les, for sitting in. Really appreciate your insight and your experience. It's a pleasure, Doug. Thanks, everybody. Well, with that, folks, we are going to wrap this up, say goodbye. And I want to extend a personal uh, note of appreciation for you taking time out of your busy day to, to listen to our banter here. If you're looking for other ideas and, and information from anything that I and my team can do, just hop over to the links that we've got. The best way is my own name, DougThorpe.com. Real simple, connect there. A lot of information, likewise, that I share on my website, blog, podcast, the archive of old episodes, etc. And don't forget our YouTube channel. Just look it up, uh, titled by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. With that, I'm going to say goodbye. Have a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.